have, as we've mentioned, been talking about life. And uh, we've been in the New Testament. We've been looking at the scriptures. We started this weeks ago. We were talking about this wonderful prayer that the Apostle Paul gave us as he wrote a letter to the church in, in Philippi. We spent a few weeks there. Then we shifted along the way and turned towards the 15th chapter of John and the teaching of Jesus that is often known as the teaching of the vine. And the vine, life, fruitfulness, the symbol of it, growth, the green, um, all of it is part of the story. And we're going to engage it again. We've, we've looked at the first parts of that teaching. And again, what's so significant about the teaching that we're looking at here in John 15 is that it didn't come, interestingly enough, you know, somewhere in the middle of our Lord's ministry. It came at the very end. And so somewhere after the disciples and, and the Lord had left the upper room and started their, to make their way through the streets of Jerusalem, down into the Valley of Kidron, up into the Mount of Olives, which you can still go, through, go today, into the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive groves. And there was a place there where Jesus and his disciples gathered, and they would often meet. And, and they, that was the place where Jesus knew he was going to be arrested. It was where the traitor had told him Jesus would be. And um, he gives this teaching along the way. So it's important to remember, it's not just, you know, something that is disconnected from, you know, like it's just, we read it in John 15 and we're tempted to think, oh, this is just, you know, a teaching that's kind of in its own right. You know, one day he gave this teaching. Actually, he gave it as part of a movement. So these are some of the last things he has to say to his disciples. That's important to that. So I'm not going to read through and discuss the first eight verses but I want to at least look at a couple of them, and then we'll, we'll move into our key passage, which is three verses in, in John 15, verses 9 through 11. But I want to go ahead and read, and, and you're certainly welcome to follow along with me. In John 15, again, just the verses that we looked at in the past couple of weeks, Jesus says, I am the true vine, that is, I'm the vine true, the true, and my Father is the vine dresser, he is the keeper of the vineyard. Second verse, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it back so that it can bring forth more fruit. He says, You've already, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. So this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to abide in me, live in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. It's like Jesus is saying, don't you ever forget where the life is found, that life in me is found staying connected. And when the branch is disconnected, it cannot bear fruit. But as long as it's connected, the nutrients flow up the vine into the branches. The branches are what produces the fruit. The fruit is connected to the branch that is connected to the vine. And he says if the, if the branch ever breaks off from the vine, it dies because life can't get to it. So he's saying, without me, you can't do nothing. Not, in my, not when it comes to my life. He goes on in verse 8 to say this, but by this my father is glorified, truly honored. He is truly honored in the sense that you would bear much fruit. In fact, he says, if you do this, so you will be my disciples. That he says that the, an indication of disciple, of being a true follower of Jesus, and that's what a disciple is, a dedicated, devoted follower, a committed one, is always going to show up in a couple of ways. There's going to be a, a bearing of fruit. There's going to be some effect that that relationship ha with Jesus has in our everyday life. It's going to show up in the way in which we, we love, the way in which we work through the challenges that it, we will inevitably face in just living, the, the issues that confront us that we are forced to deal with, many of which 
are unfair. And I've, I've talked to a number of people who've been wrestling with these words. And I had uh, certainly one, someone come up to me after service this morning and, and um, they were just sharing with me uh, some of the pain of life. And I thought, you know, uh, the Lord is there too. He enters into our pain. Not every question on this side of eternity is answered to our satisfaction. I know this. We live in a broken world that God gave his only begotten son to enter into it, and he fully felt that pain. And sometimes it's just um, important for us to remember that God knows what it is like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have unfair things happen. He's not just afar. He has come near. We see God in the face of Jesus, and he entered into it fully and drank that cup fully. So bearing that in mind, we come now to the ninth verse of John 15. And this is in your handout, and we'll look at it together. But in John 15, 9, Jesus goes on to say this after he just talks about the vine and abiding in, in the vine and living in the vine. He says, listen, as the Father has loved me, I also, I also have loved you. It's a very tender and penetrating word. He says, and what I want you to do is I want you to remember this, and I want you to abide in my love. I want you to learn how to live. He's talking to men here in this particular moment. He's talking to all of us, but he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking to them about love, and he's saying, I want you to live in my love. The love that I've given to you, the love that I've, I've gotten, in a sense, from my own Father, as the Father has loved me, and I have sought to love you, I want you to dwell in that love. I want you to build your life into that love. And so it's like he's saying the atmosphere of your life is to be the love of God. That it is to be as real to you as breathing is. We breathe in and we breathe out. Live in the love of God. Verse 10, he says this, but it, how do you do this? Well, this is what he says it looks like. What does that mean, live in my love, abide in my love? How do we abide in his love? This is what he says. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, Jesus links love with keeping his commands. It's very important. In other words, he's saying this, don't say you love me and then not do what I say. He's saying actually that faithfulness, loyalty, commitment, these are, these are the stuff of love. That when all is said and done, feelings may fluctuate, but there's something about a loyal heart and a committed heart and a devoted heart that remains when there's nothing left to get. You see, that's the love he was talking about. It's the love he was modeling. It's the love that he wants us to fill our lives with. And you know what? It's a reminder to me that he, he always was contending for all of us who would claim to follow him to not simply say we love him and then disconnect it from the everydayness of our life. That if we say we love Jesus, that it's going to affect how we live and he says, you're gonna, it's going to show up in the way that you keep my words. And so how do we know if we're keeping his words if we never actually study his words? It implies, it presupposes that there's going to be an intentionality about the way in which we engage God. Again, it goes back to this whole idea of the branch being connected to the vine. And that is what he is saying, that if we are not connected to the vine, we're not, if we're not engaging him in his words, if we're not building a relationship with the Lord, there's not a sense that we're moving in relationship with God in prayer, trying to actually read his word on a regular basis, engaging in conversation that involves discussion about the Lord. If this, is, this is to be integrated into our life. As we do that, then he says, the challenge will be to live out what we say we believe. 
We say we believe. In other words, love is not saying, I believe. Love is saying, I believe, and I'm going to live it with your grace. I'm going to be open even, Lord, to the things that make me uncomfortable at times. The tough things, too, that will bring life. It's not just about shaping you into an image of what I want my little God to be. It's about learning how to conform myself into the words of Jesus. Now, you see, that's different. He's saying if we really love him, it will affect how we live, how we love, and how we relate. And he wants us to love him. But again, this love is not a loveless kind of, um, how would I say it? It's not just duty-driven. If the one thing the Lord also taught us was that, yes, he wants us to, to love him, and yes, that love is to show up in the way in which we live it out and live his words out. But if it's just to do our duty, we're missing so much of what he talk, was talking about. I, I recall on more than one occasion that Jesus talked about the importance of not simply going through the motions. Don't, don't just do that, he said. Don't ever do that. Don't reduce this thing to just a religious ritual. Don't make it a vain repetition. Don't disconnect it. Make it something that was not meant to be. Don't, he says, I'm not, basically what the Lord is saying, love is not blind submission and um, uh, simply just, uh, you know, being obligated. It's, it's not uh, rote religiosity or uh, just, you know, ob obeisance that is, is, you know, just being done to comply with the orders. It's not about that. I mean, think about, if you think about it, um, he said it, that it, in his father's kingdom that loyalty and love were to be symbiotic. They were to live together and that we need both love and loyalty for it to work right. And what, I'm, what do I mean by that? I, I'm, I'm going to suggest that loyalty without love is, um, is often mean-spirited and not, it's, it's, it's rarely glad. And one of the things that I think most hurts the purpose of the Lord is when people who claim to know him and represent him are not glad and happy and filled with joy. And I'm not talking about problem-free living. I'm talking about a rigidity that reduces the Christian life to a set of rules and, makes, and takes the melody and the art out of it and, and, and makes it something static and lifeless and rule-driven. And when that, see, when that happens, now, again, Jesus is saying we honor him by honoring his words, but at the same time, he's not just interested in simple compliance to the letter. He's, he's not talking about that because how many people have been driven away from the heart of the Lord, from the Lord's goodness because of a misrepresentation, an angry representation of his heart so that's not what he's talking about. I often, when I often think about uh, loyalty without love, I think about the, the parable of the prodigal son, and I often think about the older prodigal son, the, the one who stayed home, the brother with the crossed arms, who could not rejoice at his brother's return, who was doing his duty, but he had lost the heart of his father. We can do our duty and miss the love. Also, though, if you think about it, yes, loyalty without love is something that is, is to be dismissed, yes, but, and not pursued. But the same token, love without loyalty. <laughs> what is it but an empty cloud? You know, a ringing in, the, in our ear. Uh, <laughs> and, 
<laughs> you know, what is it? <laughs> Hello, Lord. <laughs> you are there. <laughs> but love, love without loyalty for all of its words. I love you, I love you, I love you. But it doesn't show up in commitment. It's empty. Empty. It's, uh, it's like a lost son in a far country. Right? It's a betrayer's kiss. It's not this. What is it? What is it? How do you build on it? How do you build on it without commitment? How do you do it? The words are nice. It's like I was reading this book by um, uh, Eldridge called The Journey of Our Desire. And he says it's like on our, he was talking about obligation. He says it's like on our anniversary. He says we show up with a bouquet of flowers and our wife is delighted. But then we say, think nothing of it, my dear. It's just my obligation, right? <laughs> now, I know what my wife would say. Keep your stinking flowers. I don't want them, <laughs> right? Because if that's all that it is, it's just you doing what you're supposed to do, but no heart connected to it. Man, what is that? I don't want that. That's why at the end of the day, this is about really learning how to love God and how to receive his love. And it's, it, it's meant to be engaged, not just admired from afar. And it will challenge us to grow. And it means we're going to have to work through difficult things. And we're going to have to get past just our feelings. But feeling is a part of it. And the Lord wants us to learn how to love him with a sincerity that is honest and real. That's not just words, but it shows up in a willingness sometimes even to be countercultural in the way in which we construct our lives. We simply don't just go with the flow, but we walk with Jesus and his words. Verse 11, he went on to say this. You know these things I've spoken to you? Look at this. This is a great verse. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Uh, I tell you these things, my friends, because I want you to live a life that is filled with my joy. That's why I tell you this. And I tell you this tonight. It's like Jesus is saying. Now, it's good for us to remember that um, Jesus was a joyful, happy man. He was not known for his being dour or stern or walking around with a furrowed brow, um, intensely disconnected in his own world. Don't bother me. I'm with the Father. Leave me be. Um, I've got words to say. Leave me alone. He was integrated in daily life. He was there. He laughed. He loved. In fact, when his critics, and there were critics, when they accused him, it's interesting to note the way in which they accused him. Jesus himself talked about it. He actually said it was something in contrast to John, John the one who was often known as the John the Baptist or the baptizer, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who proclaimed the coming of the new thing that God was about to do, the announcer of Messiah, that John the Baptist, who was the one who led the way, and Jesus was the one who came after he created that entrance moment, that Jesus was talking one time to people about what the critics had to say about John and him. And it's very telling I put this in your handout, Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19. He said this, for John came neither eating nor drinking. He was an ascetic. He was extremely, <laughs> an extreme, somewhat, he says, and people couldn't take John. In fact, he says, you called him a demon. You said he's a crazed fanatic. 
He says, but I, the son of man, have come. And he says, and I've, I've ate and I've drank and I've engaged people and I've been a participant in life. And you know what you say about me? You say he's a wine-bibber and a glutton. He's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And by the way, that last phrase was not meant as a compliment. It was designed to say, see, here is an unworthy, immoral man who makes company with people who clearly are not in alignment with those whom a holy man would choose to be with. And Jesus, again, but what they did not say about him, by the way, was that he was an unhappy man because he was filled with joy. One of the things he did was he walked around blessing all the time. So many of his words, be of good cheer, blessed are you. This is the gospel, the good news. That's what gospel means, the good news of the kingdom. I'm inviting you, Jesus says, to come join the wedding feast, not the funeral procession, the wedding feast. Come sit at my table and enjoy the meal. Go, go to the highways and the byways and tell them the feast is on. The meal is being served. The guests are invited. Come and enjoy the goodness of God. That was a, me- a great message. I, I put this uh, quotation from Dallard Will, one of my favorite, favorite books of the last couple of decades is The Divine Com- Conspiracy. Dallas Willard in, in this book writes this statement about Jesus and it connects with our passage. He says that it's one of the most outstanding features of Jesus' personality was precisely an abundance of joy. This he left as an inheritance to his students, which is Willard's word for a disciple, that their joy might be full. And they did not say, pass the aspirin, for he was well known to those around him as a happy man. And it is deeply illuminating of kingdom living to understand, and this phrase stuck with me, that his steady happiness, I love that, It's deeply illuminating of kingdom living to understand that his steady happiness was not ruled out by his experience of sorrow and even grief. Think about that for a moment. Even sorrow and grief. Again, we have not been called to a funeral. We have been called to a feast. This is about life, not death. The cross, which we will acknowledge even in an intentional way, you know, in, as we move towards Easter, is not the final word. The empty tomb is the final word. That's different. That it, this, is, this is about learning how to live in the joy of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice in the Lord. This is something that God wants to teach us how to live in his joy. So I'm going to share in the minutes that we have left here some reflections on the joyful life. And I want to say, firstly, with conviction, that I believe Jesus definitely wants to fill us with his his joy, his unquenchable joy, like a cup overflowing. His joy is a gift to be received quite independent of our own effort. It is a fruit of his spirit. It is a byproduct of his presence at work in our lives. And what do we mean when we say his joy? At least part of it is what we mean by that is we're talking about a deep satisfaction within the core of our being. A happiness deep within that is unshakable, unrelenting, unquenchable, and incapable of ever seeing any situation as hopeless, even death, even the most unfair things of life. Everything about it is tinged with hope and life 
and goodness of God. Yes, even the worst of things, because there's nothing worse than to go through what he went through. But life wins. See, it, how would I say it? There, there's this fantastic passage of Scripture, and I don't think I've been able to capture what it, it did in my own soul when I first read it. It's one of the great soaring portions of Scripture in the New Testament. It connects with what we've been talking about, about this idea of an unquenchable um, life in God that will stick with us even when we have every reason not to be filled with his joy, but it shows up in amazing ways. Paul is writing in the, sec in the letter to 2 Corinthians and he says this, and I'm just going to read this sixth verse. It says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, those are poetic. It is a, it's, a, it's quite elaborate phrasing. But when you look, what is he, you know what he's doing? He starts out by saying, do you real? Because he goes on to say, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence and the power may be of God and not of us. He goes on, he starts talking about what we have in God. He talks about how what we have in God is able to sustain us in every situation. But in this verse, look what Paul is doing. He goes all the way back. What does he mean when he says, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness? What is he talking about? You know what he's talking about? He's going all the way back to the very first movement of the Bible. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And the very first three verses of Genesis 1, Genesis 1, where, he, where the Lord says, where we're told that the Lord says, let there be light. And this dark void moving like a sphere through the darkness of space, it says light comes. And, and out of that light comes all kinds of possibility of life and the beauty that we behold with our own eyes. And Paul is saying, just as God spoke into the darkness and changed that dark void and brought light into it, he says, so is God brought light into the darkness of my own heart. And there is a beauty and a splendor and a wonder that is all connected to being able to have the glory of God at work in my life as I behold him in the face of Jesus. It's a, it's a great word. And he goes on to say, that's why we have this, look at this, this treasure, he says. Think about it. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this body of mine, which he says is like an earthen vessel. It's made of clay. Literally, it, 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 in, in a way, it was fashioned out of clay. But what is a clay pot? I mean, it's a dual meaning there. A clay pot, which is an earthen vessel that they would often make out of the clay, is fragile. It can be broken. Um, he says, and yet these containers, which he's saying he is a container of the wonder of God in his life. He's saying, think about it. He goes, think about it. We fragile human beings are now participants in a divine movement of God where his very presence can fill our life and bring life into this darkness as like a light that first came into this world on its very first day of existence. I mean, it's this powerful, profound, soaring word. And then he drops into the practical and he says this because look at this. We are hard pressed on every side and we have been. He says, but we're not crushed because God is in us. He says, we are perplexed, there are times, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted even, but we are never forsaken. And we may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. He's like, he's saying, God is in me, and his joy is in me, and his life is in me. And so I can live this life even, and think about the four things he refers to here. These are, have we, we know what is, you notice, I know what it's like to be hard pressed on every side. To be hard pressed on every side. 
to have, to have, there are times when we hit rough patches in life. It is hard. It is not easy. And in these hard, he says, look, we may be hard pressed on every side, but we are not going to be crushed by it. He says, there might be times when we're perplexed. We don't know what to do. We're not sure what to do. But we're not going to give in to despair. We're not going to yield to it. We're not going to let it define us. See, we may even find ourselves persecuted, unfairly treated. That's how I see it. But even there, even though those whom we love may abandon us or hurt us, we are not forsaken. God is with us. We may find ourselves struck down. We may be unfairly hit by certain adversity in life, but we are not destroyed. We will not cave in. He's saying, because the reality of a creator God is at work in our life through the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I mean, there's something about the, it connects us all the way back to what Jesus said. I pray that your joy would be full, that you would have me in your life. Look, let me make this second, second I don't want to call it point, but I'll put this thought that I want to share around this. And it is this, and it's right, moves right in harmony with what we just read. And that is this, that the difficult places of life need not define us. And it's a theme that I return to frequently because it's all over the scriptures. Why? Why? Because Christ is in us. We've welcomed him into our life, and we're living in the vine. The hope of glory dwells, dwells there, the joy of this world. There are times when we are oppressed by the difficulties of life, and that our faith in those moments, not only does it hold surprise of all surprises, as we are feeling the heat and the pressure and, and sometimes it's pressure we brought on ourselves because we can't let things go. But in the middle of that place, there are times where, the, where the faith, our faith not only holds, God shows up and it starts to soar. And it grows in the most inexplicable way. Our love for God, the joy of the Lord, it shows up in the darkest place. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's like Elijah saying in the midst of the drought, do you see anything in the sky? And his servant says, I see it. I see a cloud, but it's the cloud the size of the hand, uh, the size of a man's hand. And he says, that's it. Watch that cloud. And that cloud begins to come, and it turns into a, a, a sky that is darkened. And eventually, it drops the rain, and the drought is gone. You know, there are times where we only can see maybe just a little cloud the size of a man's hand. But it's a word from the Lord coming to us saying, do not despair. The season of drought we find ourselves in is nearing a conclusion. And the rain is coming. And all that is represented by that flow of rain, the life, the fruitfulness, the growth. You see what I'm saying? The, the, there are seasons that God would say to us, don't give in to the despair. Don't settle under the defeat. Don't, there, there are places to visit, but don't live there. Don't abide there. Live in me, live in my joy, live in my love. Ask me, ask me for my joy. Ask me to fill you. Ask and it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, he says, the door will be opened. This we believe. If we do this, God will show up in amazing ways. It's been suggested that, by the way, that this is the first time in John 15 that Jesus ever actually said anything about his joy. He never actually said, my joy. This is the first time. And you know what's so amazing about it? Is that when does he say it? He says it at a most illogical time. Because he's on his way to a, a, a place where he's going to get betrayed and then going to get 
hung up on a tree as a common thief, beaten to a pulp. He's going to experience the worst that humanity has to give from the Roman and the Jew. Both, everybody is in on this one. The entire, the entire movement is to humiliate him as he hangs naked on, a, on what the Bible calls a tree, a piece of wood, a two-bit criminal hanging with the worst, scorned and spit on, betrayed by his own with a kiss in the garden. A play, that's not what a kiss is for. And then to know that the very people he's talking to, the very men who he's poured his life into, the love and the loyalty that he's poured into them, even now he's telling them, I want you to be filled with my joy, to know that in an hour or two, every one of them will leave him, leave him alone, all by himself. That's not what friends do. But they were afraid. And what amazes me is that Jesus is looking into the eyes of the very ones who he knows, I know you will leave me all by myself. But I want you to know this. My prayer for you is that you live in my joy. Now, what kind of Lord is this? What kind of example for us? What is that? What is that? But the love of God telling us so much more, so much more than we could ever get by just thinking things through. It's a love that says, listen, even when we let him down, and we do, my love for you abides. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. I pray my joy over your life, and I pray that you learn to live in that joy, come what may. When everyone turns, I pray that you live in my joy. That's a powerful word, a powerful word, a penetrating word. Last thing I'll say about this, the final thing I want to put on the table, and that is this, that the di not only do the difficult plans of life need not define us, but I'm going to suggest that the, our essential approach to life should always be leaning into a joyful optimism. And you say, well, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm saying because spiritually speaking, this is the way of our master. And we are his children. We are his students. And he showed us how to live in the joy of the Father. And if we follow him, we're going to learn how to live in that joy even when it doesn't seem that things are going that great. And it, by the way, it doesn't mean that we pretend that things are good when they're not that good. I don't think he's saying put on a fake smile and say a bunch of happy cliches when it's really hard. At the same token, I think that we need to remind ourselves that we have been invited to live in his joy. And so, yeah, I'm saying it's not that simple. It's not like I press a button. I'm going to have to work into this. I'm going to have to pray. I'm going to have bouts where I fall back into maybe into a season of depression. Or I'm going to be discouraged about something. But you know what? I'm going to stay with you, Lord. As long as I know this, as long as I am connected like that branch to the vine, life will flow. And life brings fruit. And fruit brings blessing. And I want to be a blessing in your name. And so this whole idea of, of living life honestly, remembering that we have a Savior who gave everything for us, remembering that we are deeply, deeply, profoundly loved by God, that we have a promise that reaches beyond death, which is what we fear so much, that we have a Savior who gives us his presence in the midst of a very complex life, 
to grow in his wisdom and in his love, that we have been given so much, so we get to decide how much of the promise that he gives us do we want to embrace. How much? Because you know why? Life has its ups and life has its downs. Part of the challenge is to learn how to be grateful in the ups and learn how to be graceful in the downs, how to draw off of his grace in the difficult place as we run this race. There we go. We run the race. I want to run the race with grace till we see his face. <laughs> Lord, I thank you because I know you love me and I know you love us. And I just really ask you, Lord, that as we prepare to move towards Easter, that we would be filled with the hope of God. And I know that one of the words you call your followers to embrace beyond the joy is hope. And hope, ah, that's a good word because it means we're never completely forsaken. And no situation is ever beyond a change because you're involved. And so, Lord, we want to live in the goodness of God as we move towards the close of this service. I pray that this song would be a particular blessing to us, even as that has been to me, and that when we get to that part, we talk about the the goodness of God and sitting in the midst of the, the sun and the, and the beauty of your creation and how grateful we are for this gift of life. I pray that it would fill us, Lord, with courage to live well for you. And I ask that you'd bless this, this closing minutes, bless our time of giving as many of us who've made commitments to you honor you in this way. We ask for this, the goodness and grace of God to be here as we close this time in Jesus' name. Better days ahead. Amen.